0: Hey, just a few quick announcements before we get into this episode. I'm working on a project that's coming out in early 2018. It's a historical map of Oakland, featuring lots of interesting things that don't exist anymore. Old buildings, extinct plants and animals, the key system, and uh, lots of surprises too. I don't want to ruin it for you guys, but I've been researching this for months and months with front group design, And it's finally about to come out. There's going to be a bunch of events around the launch of the map, and we're going to be printing a limited edition that will be for sale too. So go to eastbayyesterday.com and follow the show on social media. If you want to find out when and where to get the map. All that is to say, I'm working on a handful of podcast episodes, all about different features of the map, and it's keeping me really busy. So this episode that you're about to hear, it's going to be a little shorter than usual. Kind of a mini-episode, but I think you'll like it, so just stay tuned. Also, real quick, I'm doing an event at the Oakland Library on January 31st about local myths and legends. I'll be joined by some of the Oakland History Room's most knowledgeable librarians, Dorothy Lazard and Kathleen Di Giovanni. Also, I'm doing a Nerd Night event about the history of beer in the East Bay in February at the Good Hop Bar. That should be a lot of fun. Again, follow East Bay Yesterday on social media to get all the details. Alright, here we go. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. <laughs> Let's,
1: begin. Let's begin.
0: This is Liam O'Donohue, and I'm currently reporting from the top of Mount Wanda, on the outskirts of Martinez. Martinez is a town in Contra Costa County that's right on the Carquinez Strait. It's about 25 miles northeast of Oakland, and from where I'm standing now, it's just beautiful. We've got the East Bay rolling hills going off in, in every direction, really. We've got the strait leading into the delta on one side and the bay on the other. I'm here today because Mount Wanda is part of the John Muir National Historic Site. It's actually named after Muir's oldest daughter, Wanda. And the reason I'm here now. Is because even though John Muir has been dead since 1914, his gravesite is finally just opening to the public. And we'll get into why that took so long in a minute. But I wanted to come pay my respects to the man who's often referred to as the father of America's national parks. And if you're familiar with John Muir, that's probably how you know him. He was the founder of the Sierra Club. He helped make sure Yosemite and the Grand Canyon and a ton of other places would be turned into parks so they'd be protected from development. Understandably, the popular image of Muir is, you know, this rugged outdoorsman way off in the wilderness, far away from civilization. But that's only part of the story. He spent the other half of his life living very comfortably for the most part right here in the East Bay. He even hung out in Oakland sometimes. And this is the part of his life that's not usually covered as much in all the books and documentaries about him. So today, we're going to figure out why. Why this man who traveled the world and saw the most beautiful places you could ever imagine and loved being out in the wild, settled down right here, pretty close to one of the biggest cities on the West Coast. You were listening to East Bay yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. Even if you don't know much about John Muir, you probably recognize the name. There's a ton of stuff named after him. The John Muir Trail, John Muir College, and Middle School. John Muir Business Park, John Muir Road, and of course Muir Woods up in Marin, which is not the same as the John Muir National Historic Site. We get people coming
2: here thinking that they're going to Muir Woods. They're like, where's the coastal (laughs) Redwoods? And they're like, ooh, wrong place.
0: That's Jessica Sloan, one of the park rangers at the historic site in Martinez, where John Muir lived for much of the second half of his life. When I was talking to Jessica and two other park rangers, I mentioned that my wife works at John Muir Medical Center. Jim McDonald, one of the other rangers, told me about how the name of that facility leads to some confusion, too.
1: People come by here and think John Muir was a doctor because of Muir Hospital. Yeah. I, you know, I was, we had kids who come here and they, they're, all, they're all born in John Muir Hospital and they said they admire John Muir because they were born in his hospital, you know.
0: John Muir was a lot of things, But he wasn't a doctor. He was born in Scotland and grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. His dad had him working very hard from a young age in the fields. But he wasn't just doing manual labor. He was also an inventor. Probably John Muir's most famous invention was an alarm clock bed that literally dumped you on the floor and lit a lamp when it was time to wake up. Yeah, that didn't really catch on. But... His skill with technology did help him get work outside of the family farm and get away from his strict, religious father. In order
1: to fund his own little travels back then, this is when he was single, he would go and work in machine shops in order to earn money, enough money, so that he could go on out tramping through the woods and so on. So um, he was working in a machine shop in Indianapolis and a piece flew off and hit his optic nerve and he was blinded for four weeks.
0: This injury changed everything. After he got his sight back, Mir decided that he needed to see the world, so he walked more than a thousand miles down to the Gulf of Mexico. His plan was to go to the Amazon, but he got malaria, so he decided to come to California instead. As soon as he landed in San Francisco, he was like, which way are the mountains? And he walked to Yosemite. Around this same time, one of his former professors from Wisconsin moved out to the East Bay, along with his wife, who John Muir was also really close with. These folks were named Ezra and Jeannie Carr.
1: Ezra was then working at UC Berkeley. So that brought him here. And through those uh, you know, contacts, um, he met a lot of influential, highly educated, artistic people and so on, um, who were living in the East Bay and mostly in the Berkeley Oakland area.
0: The reason why those connections to important intellectuals were so crucial for John Muir is because when he wasn't sheep herding or exploring up in the mountains, he was trying to build his career as a nature writer and scientist. And he used the Bay Area as his home base for this kind of work. Stuff that requires being able to use the mail and meet with editors and other scientists and give lectures. You know, writer stuff. He even gave a lecture about glaciers, one of his main areas of expertise, in Oakland's very first public library. But speaking to big crowds didn't come naturally to John Muir. So sometimes he needed a little help. The ranger, Jim McDonald, told me about this one trick that Muir got from his friend who was a painter that he used to calm his nerves.
1: William Keith gave him a painting of Yosemite and told him to put it in the back of the room and just concentrate on that, and he'll be better. And he, and he was.
0: Okay, so back to John Muir's friends, Ezra and Jeannie Carr. They're the ones who introduced Muir to the social and intellectual elite through their connections at UC Berkeley. Well, they didn't just help him out with his career. Jeannie liked to play matchmaker. And this is how such a wandering spirit like John Muir ended up living in an 18-room Italianate Victorian mansion in the East Bay. I'm curious about why he settled down here and you know, what you think he loved about this area. I think it's you know, basically
1: it was love. It was his wife, Louis. Um, Louis's father owned a 2,600 acre fruit ranch here in Martinez.:
0: This is such an important part of the story because John Muir probably wouldn't have been able to achieve so much if it wasn't for his wife, Louis, and her father, John Strenzel. John Strenzel was a doctor from Poland but he eventually immigrated to America and became one of the pioneers of California horticulture. He was a genius at figuring out how to grow all kinds of plants and how to make money doing so. California's oldest commercial pear orchard is actually still growing right next to where the Strenzel family and John Muir are buried. Anyway, the Muir Historic Site, it's all on what used to be Strenzel's ranch which was mainly orchards.
1: There was a variety. There was peaches, apricots, plums, pears, Bartlett pears was really vivid, table grapes. I think cherries they had also.
0: Yes, there were definitely cherries. I know that because Mir used to send a shipment of cherries down to his favorite Oakland librarian every spring. Shout out Ina Coolbrith. If you want to know more about her, Listen to the very first episode of East Bay Yesterday. Anyway, once Mir fell in love, he joined the family business.
1: When he married Louis in eighteen in 1880, um, he took over running the fruit ranch. He actually worked a good 10 years. And really, he didn't even write that many letters or anything, he really worked hard on the fruit ranch.
0: Now, Mir didn't run this 2,600 acre ranch all by himself. Most of his workers were guys who had come from China to build the railroads. And after that, they found jobs on farms. So just like today, over 100 years later, California agriculture relied heavily on immigrant workers. Also, for a guy who was like really into gazing at clouds, John Muir knew how to make bank.
1: He was an extremely astute businessman, believe it or not. People said they used to see him going into the bank of Martinez with pillowcases full of money, from selling his fruits. He also negotiated with the railroad for a right of way through the property here, and the train trussles out there still now. He he asked for a ten dollar gold piece a year, plus they build Muir Station, and they transport his fruit free for life to market.
0: Pretty good deal. During this time, when he wasn't working. He spent a lot of time with his daughters, the ones who Mount Wanda and Mount Helen are named after. Again, park ranger Jessica Sloan.
2: He hiked around the property here a lot with his girls. He liked to teach them the names of the flowers, and um, he, was, he always took delight in the fact that they were good, strong hikers that weren't afraid to climb on rocks.
0: But even though he did a great job running the ranch, he wasn't passionate about it, the same way that he was about nature. Here's the third ranger I talked to, Tori Baird.
2: He grew up on a farm and he was kind of forced in a way to work on that farm throughout like his later childhood. And I think that kind of returning to that was a labor of love in a way. And sure. he did it for his family. He did it for, um, you know, for the yeah. money as well.
0: And even when he was focused on running the orchards, he didn't totally stop going out into the wilderness. He still made time for the occasional adventure. He was up climbing Mount Rainier
1: and almost actually died at the very top. A huge snowstorm came in, and it was was pretty rough, but he made it back down to the hotel down there, and there was a letter waiting for him from his wife, Louie, saying that she sold off some of the land and that they now had enough money that he could stop toiling in the fields and concentrate on his writing. So she was a huge supporter of getting him that
0: pen in hand Louie knew what her husband needed, and she made the financial decisions, like selling off part of her inheritance, that allowed him to get back to writing about nature. Maybe one day she was just leafing through his journals and came across passages like this, quote, I am losing precious days. I am degenerating into a machine for making money. I'm learning nothing in this trivial world of men. I must break away and get into the mountains to learn the news." End quote.
2: The main thing is that he grew up during the Industrial Revolution and really saw what we were doing to our planet he could see that we were using of our resources way faster than we were able to replenish them and he knew that with all of the technology that we were bringing into the world nature was in danger.
0: Again that's ranger Tori Baird. She's explaining how John Muir grew from somebody who loved nature into somebody who devoted his life to protecting it and how he became one of the forefathers of environmentalism
2: getting into these places, places he'd never seen before. He'd never seen mountains like we have out here. I'm from the Midwest, and I had the same experience coming and seeing these mountains. It's just magical, and <laughs> it's hard to let go of that, and that kind of fills you up with this need to go back and to tell people about it, and I think that that was, you know, that's where he was coming from. He was like, wait a second, this, this is in danger. People are mining, people are grazing, people are chopping, you know, trees what? down for houses. This is This is too much. We need to stop.
0: During John Muir's time, there was almost nobody else saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't chop down all the trees as fast as we can. So when his books and essays started getting really popular, and when he co-founded the Sierra Club to save wild places, it was absolutely revolutionary. There's a reason why Ken Burns kicked off his massive documentary series the National Parks, America's Best Idea, with the story of how John Muir helped save Yosemite.
2: He saw the need to have natural places and to have human advancement. So he, right. I, I think that he was actually a little ahead of his time in seeing the need for both at a time when most people were only considering the human advancement part.
0: Before we take a visit to the gravesite, I want to stress this point that Jessica just brought up. John Muir, didn't want people to go back to living in caves. Hell, I saw his writing room, and it had a freaking marble fireplace. The dude appreciated luxury, but he recognized that we need to find a way to live in harmony with the earth, and not just for the survival of nature, but for humanity too. Okay, he said it better than I ever could, so I'll just quote Mir again. Thousands of tired, nerve shaken over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wildness is a necessity.
1: He's got admirers from all over the world who come here to little Martinez in order to um, pay homage to me here at, at, at the house. And it's basically, they're all surprised. They can't believe he lived in that house. This is just another little piece that they can put together. And maybe the final piece for them, for John Muir by visiting his grave.
2: Right. Well, and that's kind of the beauty of our site, is we get to tell the the fuller story of who John Muir was as a person. So that people see him as more than just the tramp in the woods. Right. And with that, I think we need to conclude, because I'm about to go start the gravesite tour.
1: (laughs) I'm going on it, too. So. All
0: right. (laughs) This is kind of a complicated story, but here's the short version. John Muir's gravesite used to be on his family's property, but since they sold off pieces of that real estate, the plot is now surrounded by private property. It took years and years of negotiations with the neighbors, but now, if you go to the John Muir Historic Site, you can take a little shuttle bus out to the mini graveyard to pay your respects. Check out their website, though, because you've got an RSVP, but it is free. Anyway, the site is beautiful. There's a creek running alongside it and a giant eucalyptus that John Muir called the guardian angel. And it's very quiet except for the sound of wind and rustling leaves and lots of birds. When I visited, Tori gave our group a little overview of the history of the graves and who's buried there. It's all relatives of Myr and the Strensels. The anniversary of John Muir's death is coming up, by the way. He died on Christmas Eve of 1914. After Tori's talk was over, I stayed behind for a few minutes and just kind of stared at the tombstone. And I felt a wave of surprisingly intense emotions. It's. Kind of hard to describe, but I guess I was just feeling really grateful. You no, know, I um, I didn't really expect to to get emotional at all yeah. coming here. But uh, you know, when you were talking about the life of uh, John Muir, you know, I'd say I got like a little little teary eyed yeah. just because I think you know um, I've had so many amazing moments in places like Yosemite Mm -hmm. and uh you know I never really thought like when I was there like oh this probably wouldn't exist if or might not exist if it wasn't for you know John Muir and so just coming here and feeling that connection is pretty cool yeah I'm really glad this is open to the public now I think people are gonna um really appreciate it
2: I like also that it's kind of a a contemplative place as well you know it's quiet and peaceful and I think that that's important an important part of John Muir and his his philosophy is you know being able to be at one with yourself in nature and kind of have those peaceful moments away from all the hustle and bustle. I mean I can't you can barely hear the highway anymore. <laughs> barely. <laughs>
0: yeah, we're a good like 3 minutes away from like a huge road. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. I'll be posting some cool photos of John Muir's house and the gravesite, site and even the park rangers on social media. So don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For this episode, I just want to thank all the wonderful folks at the John Muir National Historic Site. It's totally worth checking out and the people who work there could not be friendlier. Also, if you're curious about John Muir's books after hearing this episode, that's great. You should totally read them. But I also strongly recommend reading the book Savage Dreams by local author Rebecca Solnit. A big chunk of that book is about how the Yosemite that John Muir encountered was not actually a pristine, untouched wilderness. The native people who'd been living there for thousands of years have been forced off that land and many of them had been killed about a generation before john muir got there that's a big part of the history that most people who go to yosemite don't really know again that book is called savage dreams by rebecca solnit music for this episode came from deeb lee rosevere the Fucked up beat Chris Zabriskie, and Poddington Bear. And the theme song music came from Anatech. That'll do it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please, please spread the word about East Bay yesterday. I'd really appreciate it. Okay, see y'all in 2018.